6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapters 3 through 4, verses 1 through 12. Now we've done chapter 3. I want to add to this 12 verses from chapter 4 to really to set the stage next time. So bear with me. 1 Thessalonians 4. There are three issues that are covered in this chapter. Private moral lives. That's a continuation of what we've been talking about. Everyday living in love toward one another. That's a continuation of what we talk about. And questions concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what we'll defer for next time to really get into that for a lot of obvious reasons. So let's just read 12 verses here. Furthermore, when we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner, because that the Lord is avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. And he therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more, and that ye study to be quiet, and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing." Those are the 12 verses I want to include as if they were part of chapter 3 for our purposes here. The first of these verses was, Furthermore, then ye, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us, how ye ought to walk and please God, so we would abound more and more. That's the practical side of what we commonly call the Christian walk. In fact, verse 1 through verse 12 is really a summary of the Christian walk. That's why I wanted to include it with our review of chapter 3. But it, does, it doesn't apply a static thing, it implies growth. 2 Peter 3.18, where we're instructed to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. If you could measure your, your walk right now, 12 months from now, will you have progressed or will you have retrograded? Or will you be the same? If you've been a Christian 10 years, is that one, one year's experience repeated 10 times? Or have you really grown? That's the question. You, this implies growth here. To walk, okay, that's what we're talking about here. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. Commandments here. See, in regard to their walk, we will find Paul giving some commandments to the Thessalonians. We're not talking about the Ten Commandments here. That may surprise you. That's a presumption. Be careful of presumptions. See, the Lord Jesus also gave commandments. 
Some of these commandments are new commandments we learn in the, new, in the Gospels. The standard for the Christian conduct, which they set, is on a much larger plane than the Ten Commandments. Well, I live by the Ten Commandments. I don't believe it. You can't. I can't. It's impossible. And yet, that standard ain't high enough for the Christian. Wow, what's that mean? In chapter 5, we're going to discover 22 commandments for the believers. Not 10. No, 22. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 5. The Ten Commandments have no part in the sinner's salvation, nor are they the standard for Christian conduct. The Ten Commandments don't save you. You can't keep them in the first place. They're there to show you that you need a Savior. And they're not the standard that we live by. We have a higher standard, unfortunately. (laughs) Or fortunately, however you want to look at it. The Ten Commandments were not given to save us. They were given to show us that we are sinners and that we need a Savior. That's what they're for. They're there to show that we we can't make the mark. Now, a question obviously arises here. If a man could not keep the Ten Commandments, how can he keep higher commandments? Wow, good question. The Bible makes it very clear that man was not able to keep the Ten Commandments. Peter mentions that in Acts 15. And putting on the, on the Gentile, put a yoke on that we could not bear. The nation Israel transgressed these commandments, and the Bible is full of those, but they're summarized by Peter in Acts 15. Paul has some commandments for believers. We should be disciplined. We should be in obedience to Christ. It should be a love relationship. We should be motivated by love. The Lord Jesus said, if ye love me, keep my commandments. His commandments. Now, if we can't keep the Ten Commandments, how are we to keep any higher commandments of Christian conduct? Man can't do it by himself. What's the answer? They can only be attained, they can be attained only by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within the believer. The Holy Spirit has empowered you, but you have to listen to Him. And that's not a once-in-a-lifetime decision. That's a moment-by-moment commitment. Take every thought captive, the Scripture tells us. You have resident, if you're a Christian, you have resident within you the power to overcome sin. You won't do it all the time. You'll stumble. Don't misunderstand me. But you can overcome any addiction. You can overcome, because the Holy Spirit can do it. You can't do it any other way. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Wow. Sanctification. That's a widely misunderstood word, because it's used in different ways. It literally just means to be set apart for God. In that sense, every one of you in Christ is sanctified. You are set apart for God. Is he through with you? Not yet. In the New Testament, every believer is holy, set apart for God. Sanctification, hagiomos, is the process. Holiness is the final estate. Sanctification is getting to holiness. Are you holy yet? No, you're seen as holy because the Father chooses, he, when he sees you, he sees his Son. But are you holy? Not yet. There's a process afoot. Okay, Sanctification, three distinct aspects. The first one is positional sanctification. That means we are accepted in the Beloved. God accepts us because we're in Christ. And we'll never be more saved than at the moment we put our trust in Christ. If you put your trust in Christ, you'll never be more saved than you are right now. Wow, that's a strange thought, isn't it? This positional sanctification is also called justification. We're justified. That means our debt has been paid. There's no more liability on our part. It's been paid by Jesus Christ, His shed blood. There's a second use of that term, practical sanctification. That's the Holy Spirit working in our life to produce a holiness in our walk. This is a work in progress. 
and will never be perfect so long as we are in these bodies with our old sinful flesh. You can't cast out, can't cast out the flesh. It's there. And then there's a final total sanctification which will occur in the future when we are conformed to the image of Christ Jesus and is ref- this is referred to as glorification more formally. If you look at the word salvation as a, as a verb with three tenses, in the Institute we try to discourage the use of the word salvation because it's ambiguous. You know, I was saved in a burning fire last year or something. We're not talking about that. We're talking about soteriological or theological salvation. In the past tense, it means separation from the penalty of sin. That's a done deal. It was, done on, it was nailed to a cross in Judea some 2,000 years ago. The present tense of sanctification is separation from the power of sin. That's an ongoing battle that you and I are indulged in day by day, year by year. The future tense of salvation is separation from the very presence of sin, devoutly to be wished. Now this first one, the past tense, is called justification. The present tense, which is an ongoing work in progress, is called sanctification. The future tense, which occurs at the rapture and following, is glorification. All three of these terms are terms of salvation, past, present, and future. We found that this paradigm really will raise the fog on a lot of misunderstandings and confusion in this area. So I encourage you to master that. Let's move on, verse 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Wow, there's that nasty word. And that includes all forms of illicit sexual intercourse, not just the specific act. It's not just adultery. It's a much broader term. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, we learn from 1 Corinthians 6. And it belongs to God. And when you indulge in these things, you are profaning God's temple. Remember, this epistle was written from Corinth. Adultery was common there in the poetry and the arts. See, our, what we call the new morality is just the old morality, immorality brought up to date. Paul, Paul wrote two letters to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And we typically call those first Californians and second Californians. Because the term California has come to be synonymous with fornication. So did the word Corinth. To be a Corinthian carried the stigma of being implied that you're, you're a fornicator. They use that in the language. You're a Corinthian. In a, in a derogatory sense, it was describing a fornicator. And, and if you think of Hollywood and you think of California in that sense, the term fits. Sexual purity. In Greece, sexual sins were winked at, like today. We don't take much. We talk them affairs. We find these euphemisms. Well, everybody does it, so we sort of wink at it or we smile at it. No, that's, that's, that's distant from holiness. They should refuse to allow the practice of Christian church to be determined by the ideas of contemporary society. This idea of politically correct tolerance, for an example. No. That includes homosexuality. That includes a lot of things that we should be intolerant of. That's not very popular. I don't think Jesus was running a popularity contest. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. His vessel. See, your body is the vessel of the soul. Your body is the vessel of the soul. 
realize that. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. A God-empowered man rules his body. The model is the spirit controls the soul which controls the body. If you turn that upside down, you have the unsaved person whose body rules his appetites and destroys the soul. The God-empowered man rules his body. Passion is always used by Paul in the bad sense. We can use the word passion rhetorically in a positive sense too. Paul always uses it in the negative sense. The word Gentiles here normally refers to the nations. In the usual sense, it's the non-Jews. Here though, it's used as non-Christians. Paul is taking the presumption that if you're in Christ, if you, that you're, in, you're neither Jew nor Gentile, you're in the body of Christ. You see? And so most of those that are saved there were, came from a Gentile background. And so when he uses Gentiles here, the context implies he's speaking of the non-believers, the non-Christians. Now it's interesting that the suppression of the knowledge of God always leads to idolatry. Idolatry leads to immorality, and immorality leads to death. Idolatry always leads to immorality. They're bound together. It's astonishing to realize how much idolatry is always has sexual connections. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. Avenger. See, God is the avenger. and Deuteron- That's Old Testament and New Testament. Very, very uniformly preached in both the Old and New Testament. God is the avenger. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And Paul, interestingly, also applies the Old Testament Yahweh expressions to Christ. He makes them equivalent, interestingly enough. Now, sexual sins rob others. Virginity and the expectation thereof, for example. That's a defrauding. You find people talking about victimless crimes. Do you know that victimless crimes don't exist? They try to say certain crimes are victimless crimes. No. Because they injure those in whose love you live. When you create a crime, you're injuring yourself, and in injuring yourself, you're defrauding someone who loves you. So there's no such thing as a victimless crime. If it's a crime, more people involved, and you'll discover they're contagious. And one of the subtle aspects of this in our culture is the erosion of what I call the sanctity of a commitment. That's something new in the last generation or so. That wasn't always that way. Certainly in marriages. The sanctity of a marriage is eroded in our culture. What is the divorce rate over 50%? That wasn't always that way, even in the secular world. Also in business. One of my toughest adjustments going from the public boardrooms to professional Christianity is the lack of ethics. When I, for 30 years, I traveled in public board, a dozen different companies in the boardrooms. When someone said something, you could trust them. My word is my bond. Was their ethic? I don't know if they were saved or not, but you could trust them. You could bank on a verbal commitment. That's the kind of people that made things happen in, our, in Wall Street. Not anymore. So sue me is the typical cry. The sanctity of a commitment is lost today in our marriages and in business. We'll get to touch a little bit in a minute. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but, uh, but unto 
holiness. That's what he's called us to. A child of God cannot continue in sin. Will you stumble? Sure, we all do. But we don't stay there. The prodigal son may get into the pig pen for a while, but he won't stay there because he can't live in the pig pen. One that's unsaved can. They can enjoy it. If you're saved, you'll be unhappy there. You'll be miserable. He therefore that despises, despises not man but God, who hath also given unto us His Holy Spirit. Wow, there's that word again. You don't want to sin against the Holy Spirit. He indwells in you. See, Paul usually thinks of the Spirit as given once for all. Here, the giveth here is really present tense, continually gives is what he's really saying. This is God's supreme gift, to continually feed you with the Holy Spirit. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. See, the early church was characterized by love. Did you know that? Tertullian quotes the heathen in his day of remarking in amazement, Behold how these Christians love one another. That was their badge. That was their emblem. That was their identity. Boy, what a pleasant thing that is. I won't ask you for a show of hands how many of you think that characterizes Christians today. I don't think so. Thessalonians always demonstrated love. We saw the first chapter and all the way through. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. In other words, you're doing great, but keep it up. Christians must never be weary of well-doing. Straightforward enough. See, love for the brethren is an area for growth and development for all of us. Very candidly, some of the saints are not very lovely. And I'm indebted to J. Vernon McGee for a little uh, poem that I had to include in my remarks here. Someone has put this fact into a little jingle. To dwell above with saints in love, oh, that will be glory. But to stay below with the saints I know, <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just had to include that in the, you know, your notes are incomplete without that little jingle. <laughs> Moving on to verse 11. And that ye study to be quiet and do your own business and to work with your own hands as we command you. Boy, there is a formula. Three things. Three sources of trouble in your life. Not bridling your tongue is one of them. Interesting, that's the first one, right? Proverbs 70, 28 comes to mind. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. And he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. It's amazing how many complex meetings you can get through by just not saying a word and you'll be deemed the wisest person present. Interesting. Keep your peace, you see. And to mind your own business, tend to your own knitting, he's saying. Meddlesomeness is another challenge. No kidding. And of course, idleness. That is, the, the absence of tangible productiveness. You can be busy, but are you productive is really the term here. To work with your own hands in their parlance, in their agrarian economy. In our, in our parlance, the economy is a little more complicated, but are you producing fruit? Economic fruit. Are you doing something that has value? Tangible productivity is a suggestion. Study that you be quiet, part of your tongue, do your own business, tend to your own knitting, and to work with your own hands. Accomplish something as we command you. 
that ye may walk honestly towards them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. Wow. To walk honestly. It astonishes me to discover how rare that is within the professional Christian community. I spent 30 years in the corporate boardrooms. I was in 12 public boards. I was chairman and CEO of six different public companies. And that experience spoiled me. Because I happened in reflection, to de- I was dealing with some very top-tier professional, uh, professional executives. I got to take that for granted. When I moved to professional Christianity, it was like going from a convent to a brothel. Now, there is a verse that meant a lot to me. Uh, I didn't really appreciate it at first. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, Peter says, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge um, temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. And I probably read that dozens of times in the King James Version, and I thought I understood it. Okay, add, uh, add to your faith virtue and virtue knowledge. And The word virtue doesn't rattle, doesn't, doesn't grab me. What do you mean virtue? That doesn't rattle when you shake it. What do you mean virtue? And I was pleasantly surprised to see how the, King, the uh, International Standard Version translates this same passage. You ready for this? For this very reason, you must make every effort to supplement your faith with moral character. And moral character with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, your self-control with endurance, and your endurance with godliness, and your godliness with brotherly kindness, and your brotherly kindness. Moral character, that leapt out at me. That solves a mystery that I've been fumbling with for more than 20 years. Because I never could understand why is it that we have biblically people who professionally teach the Bible that are, in some respects at least, devoid, devoid of ethics. Moral character. And I was surprised what Peter is saying here. Add to your faith moral character and then to your character knowledge. He doesn't go from faith to memory, you know, to knowledge. No, no, there's an intermediate step that is overlooked in our culture, in my opinion. The, the old-fashioned I, concepts of what is embraced in the King James English is virtue. But virtue is sort of an abstraction to us in, in our vocabulary. Well, he has virtue. What do you really mean? He has moral character. Ooh, that rattles when I shake it. And that's a precedent condition. Add to your faith moral character. And your, then to your moral character with knowledge and your knowledge with self-control. And you, the chain continues. But the early link in the chain is moral character. And how absent that is from our general teaching of principles. Because most of the uh, 19th century writers could take that for granted. You read Ben Franklin's autobiography. He worked hard to establish what he called a virtue. He listed, I forget the number, I think 12 virtues. And he knew he couldn't attack all of them at once, so he took each month he took one and practiced it. And he, tried, he had a little program he put himself through to try to become virtuous. That was his concept. But the point is, the idea of being honest to others was taken for granted in previous cultures. Not today. Deceit. Somebody says, I think I'm going to go to life of crime. The guy asking, the public sector or private sector? (laughs) That you might have lack of nothing or need of nothing. A Christian cannot be a parasite. Are you robbing your employer? 
To shortchange someone is a form of thievery. It's interesting, the Scripture teaches that self-support, where possible, is a moral duty. Paul worked very hard to have some source of income other than his teachings. Yes, there were times he took, but most of the time he worked as a tent maker or in some, or with a school in several different ways. But he attempted very hard to be uh, self-supporting. Now, every chapter in Thessalonians deals with the Lord's coming. Chapter 1 in the last verse, chapter 2, chapter 3, and now we're going to chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. We haven't gotten there yet. It's climactic. That's why I've deliberately left that for next time. So, for your next session, gang, we're going to deal with the harpazo, which is clearly the most preposterous doctrine in biblical Christianity. It's got only one thing going for it. It's unquestionably scriptural. It's the ultimate nonlinearity. The rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to the end of the chapter. 13 to 18. That is our subject for next time. And it's one you definitely do not want to miss. It's certainly controversial, but we'll try to deal with it in a, very, in a bulletproof manner. The rapture of the church. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we thrill to the word that you've given us, a word that is so relevant to our very times today as we realize that we're approaching the climax of your program for mankind. But we also thank you, Father, for the practical aspects, how, how these passages spur us on to alter our priorities, to pursue more spiritually, our sanctification. We do pray, Father, that you would enrich our word life, our prayer life, and our walk before you. Help us, Father, to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord, our Savior, our coming King, in whose name we commit ourselves. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.